welcome to today's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracing. And we are here today in Oscars mode. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, March 5th, so we got one week, T-minus seven days till o- Oscar Town comes rolling in the station. <laughs> um... So we got three movies on the docket for us today as we're trying to squeeze in all the major categories before the big day. So we're going to be talking about uh, Two Leslie, After Sun, and Blonde. Uh, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start today? Um, uh, all I would like to say is I think we should finish with After Sun. So I will let you pick between the other two for where we'd like to start. Uh, let's get Blonde out of the way then. Sure. Which I think is probably the best way to put it. So Blonde uh, was came out this year. It was written and directed by Andrew Dominic. It was also co-written by uh, Joyce Carol Oates. The film stars Anna de Armas, Lily Fisher, and Julianne Nicholson. Um, the film, I'm not sure we're going to have a... Yeah, there's no budget I see. I have a loose box office which is also kind of tough to gauge because it's still a Netflix production. I have a budget at $22 million, That's the estimate, but no box office. So take every number for, you know, whatever you think that value actually is. Uh, the tagline for this movie is garbage. The tagline is watched by all, seen by none. It's <laughs> That is the best, worst tagline I've ever seen for such a shitty movie. What a pick me, bitch ass <laughs> tagline. That's awful. That's so like I'm special because I saw Marilyn for who she was, not like you people. You know what I mean? Which I'm gonna get. We're gonna get into. But I have a that's that basically sums up the movie of Andrew Dominic's ability to create this film, which is I saw her. You know, it, it's it's not that she, Marilyn was a person. It's that I had a vision of her. It's very bad. We'll get to it. It's so bad. Uh, we're talking about it because it is Oscar-needed um, for Ana de Armas, uh, best performance by an actress in a leading role. Uh, we're going to be rounding out this category today, um, and Ana de Armas is, is half of it, so obviously we have to get into that. Uh, the film itself is the story of American actress Marilyn Monroe covering her love and professional lives. Um, I'll I'll take this one to start because I really hated this. Um, yes. I hated this for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it is two hours and 47 minutes long. I'm a fan of films of length. This film has nothing to say. And so that runtime is wildly undeserved. But the film is so masturbatory in how great Andrew Dominic clearly thinks of himself and how little he clearly thinks of Marilyn Monroe. And that's kind of upsetting because prior to this, I was an Andrew Dominic. I think I still, I don't know. I liked Andrew Dominic. I really liked uh, killing them softly. I was a huge fan of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford. Like I'm really bummed out that this movie is not good because I quite liked Andrew Dominic, but this movie like makes me question him as a person. It's that <laughs> bad and poorly done. Cause for one thing, the cinematography I think is too cutesy for what it is. Um, yes. 
purporting to say, right? Um, there's a lot I want to say. I'm going to try to keep this relatively brief, but it it's not it's not a view of a person. It is it is a a, a slog of strictly negative punishing perspectives of a complex and interesting person in which Andrew Dominic is only concerned with her misery in a way that is wildly unbefitting of the human existence and the ability for not just Marilyn Monroe specifically, but anybody to be characterized beyond the strife that they experienced in life. I think it's, 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 it's this is horrible. Um, oh. Corwin, what were your thoughts? I was kind of shocked by all of the negative reactions when this first came out because by all means with the casting of Ana de Armas as Marilyn Monroe, which from an outside, you know, projection basis seemed perfect. She seemed perfect for this role. And with his background in beautifully made introspective pieces, I thought this was almost a slam dunk. This is one of those slam dunks where you smash it down onto the rim as hard as you can, but miss, and it ricochets off the rim and gets stuck in the rafters, and is just it ruins it for everyone. This was nigh unwatchable. Um, I thought it was erratic as far as the cinematography and, and editing went. There were a ton of really great, beautiful shots where if you viewed them as a still image, you would be blown away by how good it looks. And you would think, wow, this must be an unbelievably beautiful film. But the thing about film is there's 24 of those shots every second and it moves. And when you make it move, it looks like fucking shit. Um, So that's an interesting point. I want to cut you off real quick because I spent so much of the movie... At the in the early f- stages, trying to decipher why the film was alternating between black and white and color, um, because like there must have been a reason. You know, sometimes you use black and white for flashbacks, or you use color, uh, whether in general or, or more uh, broadly for like uh, dreams or imagination. Right? There's always a reason for the alternation, and I figured it out eventually. Did you figure it out? No. And this is why I say this is such a masturbatory film from Andrew Dominic. This the the color or black and white shots of the film are because they're all setups from photos of Marilyn Monroe. So if the if there be every now and then a I brief do, moment yeah, that makes so much sense. There'd be a brief moment where Ana de Armas would be in a position where mm-hmm. you could recognize a famous still shot of Marilyn doing something right and so that point that you're making about it seems like it'd be really nice for photography is kind of like why it's spot the fuck on you know what I mean like that's that was because that's what that's what they served as the they that's what they use as the basis for the photography of the film which is so tongue-in-cheek almost that it is really disrespectful to what the film is trying to do which is make it sound like Marilyn Monroe is the most put upon and belabored person to ever exist so sorry to cut you off but I thought that was just such a good and salient point agreed um 
Man, I don't even know where to go with this. Uh, I thought that Adir Moss did a completely adequate job given just the anchor that was the rest of this film dragging her down. Um, I, God, man, this is really fucking unwatchable. Um, I I didn't enjoy any aspect of it. Like, there's movies that are unwatchable where, like, there's little things that, like, you could view as a positive. I just, I didn't want to be watching this at any point. I really didn't enjoy it. No, it is it is it is a punishing experience from start to finish and in not in a productive way. Like I kept I um I had recently watched Solo or the 120 Days of Solemn for any Sodom for anyone who's familiar with that gut-wrenching experience. Um which is essentially a film about torture, right? And and it's very graphic. And I had just watched it like maybe a day or two before we watched this. And all I could think of was, I kind of wish I was watching solo again. <laughs> like it's cause it's yeah, like that. Statement. Like, cause this movie is essentially you want to watch Marilyn Monroe get fucked for two and a half hours. And it really hurts to watch. You want to watch that's Marilyn what, that's Monroe what the movie is. tag teamed on a waterfall. Where the where the where the bed sheets turn into a waterfall, but you want to see her like mournfully or regretfully give JFK a really like inebriated blowjob, like it's it is only there to serve for displeasure, in a way that is not again it is not constructive. Usually, when you try to focus so much on the internal strife of a public figure, you're doing it in a way to express that they're more complex and they're given persona might allude to that's not the case with Marilyn Monroe she was she she first off she died young from a barbiturates overdose right like it, it she it, uh, very famously very famously had a troubled life uh, very famously w- was you know experiencing a lot behind the scenes in addition to her many affairs for better or for worse so to focus in on her pain so explicitly and for so long, because that's the thing. If you had seen this movie and knew nothing else about Marilyn Monroe, you'd think that she was a lunatic, that she was an unsuccessful actress, and that she was, uh, her sexuality was not of her own, and that she was, uh, uh, if, if not boring personalityless, it misses all of what makes Marilyn Monroe such the iconic figure that she is, which is that she was a sexual being at a time where sexual libera- liberation wasn't really a thing for women and was very public about it. And I'm sure that there's this negative experiences in there. I'm not trying to say that it should have been solely positive and big uh, in, in in its affirmation of how great it was that she was getting laid all the time and so public about it. But every think about it, every single time Ana de Armas was naked in this movie, it almost exclusively led to heart, 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 hardship for her. You know, like it, it never was one of her own free will or two, if it was led to her feeling some type of joy about it outside of the three-way scenes in the beginning, but even those end up getting turned against her eventually when the photographs get turned over to the man playing Joe DiMaggio, although unnamed, I guess, to avoid legal issues. You know, like, 
here's the one who start who was the very first cover girl for Playboy, and that's not even a fact factor brought into the movie. Uh, like, not specifically. I think when uh he comes in and starts like hitting her uh, on the bed, or was he hitting her? Or... No, that that that's from when the the uh I thought that was from when the guys that she was fucking in the beginning sent him those photos, right? Oh yeah, you're right. I thought yeah, those photos were the, the shoot. Yeah, no, you're right. Because I, I think the shoot was left out and I think it was left out because it was like, well, she chose to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the only forms of sexuality seen in the movie are against her. Like they're, they're inflicted upon her by somebody else. <sighs> and then with all the, the, the cutesy editing, like, like, like the bed, she's turning into a waterfall and with the, the cameras constantly leading up to an iconic photo, it just felt like, you wanted to watch a woman get beat for two and a half hours, so you made this movie. You know? Um, I honestly would have really enjoyed seeing her, Ana de Armas, in a almost Spencer-style film depicting her life rather than whatever this was. It's bad. It's so you know, bad. Like, you could have your creative interpretation of how you view Marilyn, but at least do it in a way that shows her as this, you know, God, actual conflicting woman rather than, I don't know, a dog. Yeah, because I mean, it's also, it's not an archetype we're unfamiliar with, right? This is, a, this is similar to like talking about a, Bradley Cooper or James Madsen in A Star is Born, right? Someone who is at the peak of their fame. And granted, those uh, downfalls are as a direct result of um, how the male characters view themselves in relation to their partners. And there's an instigating factor that is uh, cooperative in that way, but that is not necessarily part of this. But still, it's it's about self-destruction um, as a result of fame, Right. But those characters still have positive traits to them, and they still have self-determination in addition to the societal inflictions and ex- uh, external pressures that they that they face or that they perceive. There's none of that here. There, there, there's none of the, 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 the niceties that those characters get, which is like Bradley Cooper is a successful musician, you know, and it, it's clear that his success is his. And James Madsen was a successful actor, and it's clear that his success was his. Like you see Marilyn getting her first job from fucking a producer and then it never does anything to convince you that she's actually a good actress. And it's what burned me so much seeing the 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 only shots that they used from some like it hot being Marilyn losing her shit on stage or um uh on set because it's like she is hilarious in that movie. And yeah, maybe she did have a freak out on set. Amazing film. It's great, and she is such a huge reason for why, not just because she's hot in the movie, because she's fucking funny. And you would never think that Marilyn Monroe was funny or a good actress from watching this movie because the only times her acting career come up is when she is losing her shit on a director or somebody or demanding more money or getting fucked. Like, it's a wild, wild read of a human being. Have you ever watched Some Like It Hot on this uh, 
both of I'm not sure we have. I don't remember. Great movie, though. Yeah, we're watching it in like high school for like a, a film class, and it being like, I don't know, she's stupid shit. It's just an old movie. Fuck that. And just coming away like, oh shit, that's fucking incredible. Well, it was that great period in time where like big Oscar winning actors also made just straight comedy movies. You know, like, first off, it's a Billy Wilder film, and Billy Wilder serious director who also made comedy you know he did film noir like double indemnity and serious dramas like the apartment but also made a straight comedy like some like it hot and then tony curtis and jack lemon both oscar actually i'm not sure if tony curtis won an oscar but jack lemon has i think two uh and then marilyn Monroe. like it's it's a killer cast was, with some like serious people tony curtis was nominated for one oscar was it the defiant ones i already clicked back so i don't know Jack Lemmon has won two Oscars. So I'm one and a half. Save the Tiger and Mr. Roberts. Hold on. Now I have to know. I'm checking now. Can I beat you to it? It's loading. The it's Defiant loading. Ones, 1958. All Best right. Two for two. Uh, Tony Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis's dad, secretly Jewish. Pretty sweet. Yeah, cool dude. Um, we have other movies to talk about, and there's really not much to say about this. Um, so I don't want to like belabor it. I will say, just to speak to the plot of this film, I would describe the chronology that they chose to focus on as exclusively bad moments, which is another reason that this movie feels so punishing and so mean is that there are no highlights that are given their own scenes and segments. The film jumps throughout time to focus on various points in Marilyn Monroe's life as a biopic would, as one would expect. But the moments it chooses instead of anything that looks like a nicety is exclusively uh, things that are bad. And if there is something good to be shown, it is immediately followed up with how that is actually a bad thing. The scene of Marilyn... um, Prancing in a field right after marrying Joe DiMaggio is met almost immediately with a scene of Marilyn being beat by Joe DiMaggio. So um, that's it's it's that for two hours and 40 minutes until the movie ends. There you go. I Um, love Anna Dearmas. I hope she doesn't win because I don't want this film to have won an Oscar. I will say I think she is actually quite bad in this. I I I disagree with you here. I think her accent is rough and comes and goes a lot. Um I never and heard it go. I thought it was pretty constant. Anytime she got kind of mad, it went out the window. And I her Marilyn voice sounded like somebody doing what they thought Marilyn Monroe might sound like as if she was like a, a person that existed pre audio recording. And someone just said, she sounded really breathy like this. Um, which I think Ana de Armas does a perfectly fine job. Like she emotes very well throughout the film, but I think personifying Monroe, she falls really short. And I think the casting of her is bizarre based on body type. 
or at least the fact that they didn't fluctuate her body type using prosthetics, you know, because like that was one of the other kind of defining features of Monroe in regards to her physicality or her physical appearance anyway, was in addition to her sexuality being very open. She also fluctuated in weight relatively frequently, which is uh, kind of unique to the time to have that happen to such a public figure. And they really didn't do that with Darmus. And I think that was well, that's not necessarily her fault. Um, it, it was uh, I think she was disserviced by the director greatly. I'll put it that way. That's fair. Um, give me some stars for this one, and we can we can move on. One, maybe one. Max out at a one. I'll max out at a one. Yeah, this is um. I also remember. I don't remember when this movie came out. I want to say it was summer ish. Um, but I do remember Andrew Dominic being like mad at people for not liking the movie do you remember this oh yeah i remember him being because he got called out i i didn't remember this until i was watching the movie and i was like oh this feels mean and then i remembered that he got called out for like using Marilyn's pain and suffering to make what is a very mean-spirited movie and he was like no you guys don't get it um and that like uh, those news stories came like flooding back to me as I was watching this movie. Like, oh, dude, you deserve to get. And I, again, prior to this, I I would have said it, I was an Andrew Dominic fan, and I think this has really made me reconsider this director as like a human being. It's 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 a mean movie. It's a very mean movie. It's it's a fucked up worldview. It, like that's how poorly done this is. But uh, I agree. One star. No good. Not very good. Do not do not watch. Do not pass Where go. Where to next? Well, I guess if we're ending with Aftersun, that puts us over to, to Leslie. So, uh, To Leslie was directed by Ryan Morris and written by, sorry, Michael Morris and written by Ryan Binacco. Um, It's the first, it's the directorial debut for Michael Morris. Um, Ryan Baracco had one other movie prior to this one called 3022 that I've never heard of that stars Omar Epps, Kate Walsh, and Angus McFadden that came out in 2019 and is not well reviewed on IMDb anyway. I don't even see critic reviews. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say it's not good, but so anyway, it's a pretty newcomer-esque uh, movie from these two guys. The film stars Andrea Riseborough, Drew Youngblood, and Tom Virtue, as well as uh, some strong appearances from Andre Royo uh, and uh, Mark Marin. Two, two nice, decent names for an indie project, as this is uh, an indie film. Uh, I don't have a budget, I don't think. Uh, under a million dollars is all I got, and a box office of $31,000. Which, again, talking about any movie post-2020 with in regards to box office, that's not a mega-wide release like a Marvel movie is kind of difficult. Um, 
especially a, a limited release indie film. Oh, also Allison Janney and Stephen Root are in this movie. I completely skipped right past them. Um, yeah, two they're, big they're, actors. Their casting order is weird. It's super weird. Um, yeah. Anyway. The, we're talking about the movie because it is nominated for one Oscar. This rounds out our, our female lead category. Um, sorry, actress in a leading role category. Uh, Andrea Riseborough. No other nominations for this film. There was some contention around Andrea Riseborough's nomination here. Do you remember this? Nope. So there was a, an investigation from the Academy into her nomination because essentially there was uh, accusations floated that Riseborough had some of her um, bigger named friends say publicly that they were voting for her to be nominated and you should too, you know, which is apparently a- against the rules. Like you're not supposed to stump for people in the nominations um, process, but they all, I guess they decided Nah, all good. Um, no horse in this race. Don't give a shit. But uh, there was some. Sure there was some contention. They would have just swept it under the rug because you know can't disparage the name of the academy. I was thinking the same thing. It's like it becomes an even bigger story the second you actually do something about it. And uh, let's be honest, folks. Who fucking cares? Of all the things the academy has not going for it, this does not really uh top the list anyway the film is inspired by true events a west texas single mother wins the lottery and squanders it just as fast leaving behind a world of heartbreak years later with her charm running out and nowhere to go she fights to rebuild her life and find redemption um i started on blonde you start on this one this was a film um man it had its moments it had some pieces where you could see why i guess why some people would push to have her nominated but man nothing about this grabbed me for a second um i thought it was exceedingly average i thought the narrative was played out and to an extent, I don't think she made much of a compelling character. You know, she's meant to be this woman overcoming, you know, a fight with addiction, uh, trying to regain, you know, her footing with her family and, and the town that she grew up with. And at no point did I feel like she really did anything to deserve me caring about her success in doing so. Um I honestly, my favorite part of this film was seeing bubbles from the wire show up and be just as weird in this as he was in that. Uh, I thought the ending was ridiculous. The whole idea of, hey, you're this guy who moved to town after I had already fucked up and left. Let me grift off you for a while and then get you to open up a diner for me. How about that? I don't know. I, I want to hear your thoughts. I think it's a nice performance from Riseboro in an incredibly weak script. 
I think the directing is also fine because I had heard that this was a, a, a directorial debut prior to watching it. And so I was kind of just curious as to like, oh, what are some of the choices made? I thought it was really well shot. I thought it was, I thought the director did a nice job in um, trying to build as much closeness and intimacy with the film as he could. But the script, the script falls so short. It is not compelling. And it does so much, right? So it, it I, this might actually be a, a good movie to kind of try to move through a little bit chronologically. And in the interest of time, we're not going to like dwell on it too much. But essentially, you you start with like a TV footage, like, like ni- grainy 1990s TV footage of Andre Riseborough winning like a local lottery and then it cuts to her being homeless is at least the impression I, I I got um and then she goes and finds her son and lives with him right moves in with him yep. so that's the first I don't know five ten minutes of the movie right okay first things first. How much money did you assume she won? <laughs> well, I feel like they say it like in that first clip when they're showing it, but like when you win the lottery, you assume it's seven digits. At least I do. Millions of dollars. It was what, 180,000? 190,000 and that's pre-tax. Obviously that would still get you pretty far. Assume like a 40% tax rate, you know. So, so and she's in West Texas. That's what I was about to say. That must get you crazy far in West Texas. Um so I guess it is it is it is life-changing money for sure for like us everyday regular folks. Like if someone dropped I don't know $100,000 in your lap tomorrow like post-tax, you'd well, you wouldn't be able to set yourself up for life, but you'd be able to really make a fuck ton of progress on it real goddamn quick. It's still life-changing. For Absolutely. Someone who has, you know, their... I mean, even if you don't have your feet underneath you, like, it, it can set you up for success. It won't right. give you... It's not generational, well, yes. but it's it's it, it sets you up real good. So, you know, it's understood. Um, and then you see the come down, and it's like, okay, you know, you're invested real quick. She moves in with the son. How old did you assume he was when you met him? Uh, 20, 20 something, low 20s. I figured he was like 27, 28. Okay, sure. Yeah. And then he says, I'm not even 20 yet. I'm like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> you, they did hair and makeup. Did you dirty? You look old. <laughs> um, hey, poverty tends to do that to you. It sure does. Um, and basically from there, when you move into a very rapid, uh, uh, degradation of character where she's, you know, she's lying about, uh, she says she'll stop drinking. She lies about it. The second she gets money, which she steals from her son's roommate, she goes to the liquor store and, and buys liquor and starts drinking it immediately and, you know, gets drunk and she fools around with a neighbor and causes a whole commotion and gets kicked out. And I I'm going to stop there for a moment because as rapidly as that happens is everything in the movie. 
And so like the next characters you meet are Allison Janney and Steven Root, where Andrea Riseborough does the exact same thing. She moves in, I'm done drinking, she goes to a bar, and she gets drunk. And it's like, we understand that that is what alcoholism is, but it's also not an interesting way to capture it. You know, like to say that the throes of alcoholism is, uh, I'm going to go to a bar and uh, try to pick up a guy. Yeah, Like, you're not really, you're not really saying anything with that. You know, that's not exactly showing a low point because it's such a standard behavior. You know, it's not even like she went to the bar at like, you know, 10 in the morning, assuming a bar was open and she's the only one there. Like there's a, there's a scene in um the movie Arthur starring Dudley Moore and uh, shit. Not Lucille Ball. I want to say Lucille Ball so bad. Luce, uh, uh, Gar- Judy Garland's daughter. What's her fucking name? Liza Minnelli. Um, there's a scene in Arthur where Arthur who is well, she was Lucille Bluth, which is why I had <laughs> Lucille Ball stuck in my head. Um, there's a scene in Arthur where Dudley Moore plays an alcoholic, where he is drunk at a bar in what seems like daylight, and he was one of only two people, three people there, and it's like they don't say anything especially alcoholic-esque, they're slurring their words because they're drunk, but it's a bar and that's the right context. But it's an empty bar and there's daylight. You know what I mean? And it's like there's additional set design or um, nonverbal elements, visual language that can help inform how aggressive someone's alcoholism is or, or you know, varying degrees of it that this film just kind of doesn't engage with, you know? I mean, yeah, it really doesn't dig into the issues as much as it just kind of almost just like I don't even know how to describe it. It's just un, uh, it's very surface level and almost like assuming the viewer to just know what it would be like and expects them to fill in all of the pieces. I don't know. I mean, yeah, and it's not to say it has to go to the point of like um, Midnight Cowboy, you know, Mm -hmm. where like Ratso Rizzo is living in complete, like the pinnacle of 1960s New York destitution. But where it chooses to focus Riseboro's pain in the film isn't it's never like that deep, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, well, she went to a bar, Well, she is an alcoholic. Like that's where they go. <laughs> you know, it's not like I had to do any attempt at, at imagining it. It's like, yeah, like they're going to follow the liquor, even her ransacking the, um, her son's apartment to, and then stealing money out of the pockets of her, um, her, her son's roommate is, like, it's weird to say, but that's one of the darker parts of the movie because the movie doesn't get much lower than that, you know? It happens so early, you kind of expect it to be, you know, that that toe testing the water. Yeah. As far as, you know, leading you into the depths that it goes, but it's rock bottom, supposedly. When you met Allison Janney, did you assume that she was Andrea Riseborough's mom? 
I did, and then got confused when she wasn't. Uh, yeah, that's the exact thought because that's exactly how they set it up. Yeah, because the son says, "I'm going to call Nancy, um, and Grandma or something like that." And I was like, "Oh, I assumed then that Nancy was like a stepmom or somebody, or that she was Grandma." Like it was a it was a confusing little. Point. Not that it matters much, but do we know what happened to Riseboro's mom? Do we do we have that? No. No. Okay. Um. So all of this, then, that's probably what the first like thirty minutes of the movie. Um. She gets kicked out of Alice and Janney and Stephen Root's place, who are great. Uh, they're great all the time. Uh, Alice and Janney and Stephen Root two of our best living character actors, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice and Jenny, recent Oscar winner, Stephen Root, still waiting. Um, so this then brings us to what ends up weirdly becoming the main thrust of the film, which is she starts living at a motel where um, Mark Marin and Andre Royo work because Mark Marin takes pity on her. Um recognizing something of i guess himself in her um and then that kind of becomes the movie <laughs> you know like yeah that was true she falls now she doesn't fall in love with marin but she it's, gains a recognition for how well positioned she is there um and how good of a guy Sweeney is. Uh, and just kind of like, it's like, ah, I guess I'm going to stop drinking. Because Marin's like, you know, you can quit cold turkey because the plot needs you to. Uh, <laughs> and Riseboro's like, yeah, I guess if the plot needs me to, I will. And then she's like throwing up and shitting a lot uh, in one scene. And then um, the movie just kind of is like, oh, you're all better now. So- yeah, it did seem like an unbelievable recovery. And the a recovery that I think I was expecting the movie to focus in on a lot, you know? I was really expecting that to be a big part of the movie. But because they spent so little time digging down into the character and showing the depths of her of her increasingly poor situation or how much pain the character was experiencing as a real result of being constantly cast about the recovery is somehow even less fulfilling because it also is just like, Oh yeah. I'm, I, Oh, Mark, you better leave. I got to poop. <laughs> like, okay. Why do you think he, would be willing to invest so much in someone so unreliable. What about his character would, would lead to that? Well, he said he was a recovered alcoholic too, right? Right. So he should know just how unreliable that can be. Well, that's what I and think she- is, uh, that's what I think is weird about the movie, right? Cause I don't know, like I, there should be more mm-hmm. from somewhere. Mark should be like way more um, emotional about and like emotionally invested in Andrea Riseborough because he sees so much of himself in her 
or he should be way more of a hard ass because he knows how much of a of a stick that she needs to get whipped into shape, right? And instead, it is like it's this weird passivity where he's like, "I feel bad for her. I I know what that's like." Um, and then that's just kind of I just hope I hope she figures it out, and then. Oh, she didn't. I guess I'll go fire her. Oh, now she's better. Now I'm all good. You know, right? Because <sighs> then there's Andres Royo's character too, who's like, "Fuck you! You gave this town a bad name, or something." Like, I don't think he did anything to her personally. Or she did anything to him personally? I, I I think they like said they went to high school together, um. So they knew each other, um, something, and then, Andrew Riseborough marks like, uh, I'm gonna make her better, and Andrew Rose like, fuck that bitch, and then Andrew Riseborough gets better, and he's like, ah, she's pretty cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna help her out with her diner business. It's like, boom. I know they mention it in the film. That is such an ungodly investment that two guys who run a just run down small town West Texas hotel have no right to be able to afford, nor should they. The time did pass, right? They said it was like six or eight. It was a year. Ten, it was a year? Okay. I think it was a year. Ten months. Ten months later. That's what it sure. was. Yeah, that's one of the yeah, weird things I about the movie. They never showed any other one else in the motel. Like there was no customer facing interaction. There was the scene, the one scene where they show Riseboro cleaning up after somebody who like left a very unrealistic mess. <laughs> um maybe it is realistic. I don't know. But like leaving half a bag of Doritos, I feel like it would just be like the crumbs of Doritos. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's like cracking open those not very big bags of Doritos and then eating only a handful of the not very many Doritos in the bag, but like, whatever, what do I know? Um, so there's like, there was a single sign of maybe other people come here, but that was, that was it. So it didn't, it didn't look like a bustling business where they could afford a second property. Like how much do you think one of those rooms rented out for at night? 30 bucks. Oh dude, I was going to say $18. Like, it's West Texas and it's a motel and it looks like crap. Like what on earth could it possibly cost? Oh, and that was one of the other things just real quick. So the property that Riseboro ends up renting out and then we can move on. This is basically the end of the movie. Um, is like the, a, a rundown ice cream shop directly across the street from uh, the motel. And I think they made a passing comment that like Andre Royo's dad used to own it or something like that. Like it, it doesn't matter. Um, but like when she's afraid she's going to get kicked out of the motel because of her alcoholism, she goes and she sleeps in there. And I think that was meant to show like a an, another low point for her, but it really felt so spiteful, you know, like, and this is what I mean. Like, I don't think I, I think Andrea Riseborough did a pretty nice job here. Mm-hmm. All things considered, because this script is so bad. I mean, the fact that we like meet Mark Maron's daughter and and granddaughter for a scene and it's not important to the movie at all is like nuts. 
it seemed like this could almost have been uh like a, a mini series the way it was set up and, and the the overall overall arc with you know it cut down to an episode and a half it, there's a a really nice comedy show so it's obviously a much sillier bend than this uh but single drunk female does this um granted a younger age um no kid but does this whole like struggling with alcoholism thing much better just want to shout out the lesser known tv show single drunk female um yeah it's a fun show ali sheedy is in it for all the ali sheedy heads out there ali sheedy we all love her what would i know her as oh she's the girl that gets the makeover in in uh breakfast Breakfast club Club. yeah and she is great in the show ali sheedy's the best everyone should participate more with ali sheedy's acting career because she is tops great in war games great great in uh single drunk female i hope they make more of it um great in psych yeah anyway um so the movie ends with open the opening day of the um diner to which no one attends which minor gripe but that's really stupid um it's really stupid because a few things one all of these people have other people they interact with and to say hey come down to the opening and get a cup of coffee it's not a hard thing to do and if Marin and Royo's well, motel is bustling enough for them to be able to afford to completely renovate this thing buy all of the very expensive equipment that they'd have to buy and open it, then one would assume that there did be somebody staying across the way that they could like force over to this joint. It's a, somebody it's a, has such to be a plot contrivance. She's cleaning. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's such a plot contrivance to say nobody came. So disappointing. Um, and then who should turn up? Alice and Janney, the nemesis. And what does she do? She apologizes. Oh, Andrea Riseborough, you did open this diner. The thing apparently you were trying to do this whole this whole movie, which we only found out about an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. <laughs> um, and guess what? I also brought your son. Come on in here, T- Tommy, or whatever your fucking name is. And then they hug. And then everything's happy and the movie's over. Wow. That's just, and everybody clapped. Nice. It is such like a 2003 ending for a movie. Oh my God. This feels like someone who grew up. No, no, no. no. The look around and goes, it's really nice, mom. That was about as 2003 as it goes. Oh, it would. It's brutal, right? It's absolutely. You know, I I realized this while as I was speaking, and now it feels so true that it like it hurts. It this feels like someone who grew up idolizing, uh, Cameron Crowe. This feels like someone who was like, uh, fucking, uh, fast, uh, fast times. Loved fast times. Jerry Maguire loved it. Say anything, loved it. I am about that Cameron Crow life, you know, like 
forcing melodramatic bullshit and cheesy overwritten lines down your gullet. That's what this ending is. It's so not good. So instead of buying a Steiner, we should have bought a zoo. We should we, we should have bought a zoo. If only they if only they bought a zoo, this movie could have ended with them Small buying a zoo. West Texas Zoo. And then her son could go direct, in. A direct prequel to Tiger King. Her son shows up. Mom, it looks pretty great. Tearfully embraces both a koala and her son. Yeah. <laughs> koala can <and> chlamydia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gnawing on eucalyptus. Uh, Corwin, thoughts? Uh, uh, rating and rep- ra- rating star rating and review on this one? Um, if you're on an airplane and need to burn two hours and you've seen the rest of the films, this is totally fine. Um, there's better ways to spend two hours of your life. So, you know, like a, a two, maybe a two and a half. Yeah, I think I'm right yeah, there. Two and a half. You. It's not bad. It's just boring. I'll, I'll take the lower end. I'll say two. I think I'm a little bit lower on this one because uh, I really... Did not care. Ah, uh, no, 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 maybe. Believe me, I don't care. I'm not. I don't care either. But I'm, I'm hedging on it because <laughs> I, I do appreciate. I do think this is a very strong first outing for a director. Um, I don't think people appreciate how hard it is to direct a movie. Um, and if you look at some of your favorite directors' first movies, a lot of them are bad. <laughs> like a lot of them are really not good. Um, and this is a pretty strong effort. Obviously, the the cast really helps. Um, because even like, I don't think Mark's great in this, even though I am a big Mark Maron fan, I think his accent is pretty bad, which I also think is funny because he is from New Mexico and I understand his normal speaking voice is not horribly Southern, but he is, I mean, how far is New Mexico from this part of West Texas? It can't be that far. I feel like they could have just said it's, that's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, just let him use his regular fucking voice. Who cares? Um, but regardless, uh, it is a nice directorial debut. And Jay Riseborough is good in it. Um, it's just, that script is just bad. Uh, so yeah, two, two and a half is fine. All right. Last one. We're actually, I feel like we're moving at the best pace we've ever moved. Wow. We've, yeah, you're right. we finally hit a nice stride. Um, anyway, uh, after sun. After Sun, written and directed by Charlotte Wells, the film stars Paul Mescal, Frankie Corio, and Celia Rousen Hall. My mouth struggled to make those shapes in time. Um, the film had an estimated budget of fuck, I don't see it. Um, what's yeah, that in US dollars? Uh, seven. I can't imagine this movie cost more than like a million dollars. It's one location for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine it costs too much to make. It grossed six, which for a film of this size is pretty fucking good. Um, as you can tell by, you know, in contrast how to Leslie fared, which was like $30,000. So, um, 
granted, this has the backing of A24, which is a, a really good vehicle for independent filmmaking. So uh, six is six is actually quite good. Um, I don't have a tagline, which for the best. Uh, so, yeah, this film was also a solo nominee film. Only got the one nomination, uh, and that is for Paul Mezcal for best actor in a leading role. This rounds out um, that category for us. So now we, we've wrapped up the two um, leading uh, actor categories. Uh, the film is about Sophie as she reflects on the shared joy and private melancholy of a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier. Memories real and imagined filled the gaps between as she tries to reconcile the father she knew with the man she didn't. Uh, Corbin, do you want to start here? Or do you want me to take it? We've each done you one. Go ahead. All right. Um, I I enjoyed this film. I found it interesting. A little bit slow, at times, but I think what makes this movie so enjoyable is not just Paul Mescal, who obviously got an Oscar nomination for this. But the the young girl, Frankie Corio, um, I kind of really wish she got a lead role nomination for this movie. I think she did a fantastic job. Um, She's definitely the best lead actress of the three that we just watched. That's what I'm saying. Like, And it's tough to oversell how hard this is from both a directing standpoint and an acting standpoint. To pin your film on the back of a child performance is really hard, and it doesn't succeed very frequently. It's one of the same. It's the same reason that Haley Joel Osment got an Oscar nomination for the shot, not the shining, the um, uh, Sixth Sense, because it's it's tough to do, and especially a film that relies so strongly on the emotional resonance of the character. I think Frankie Corio like kills it in this movie and leaves so much room for Paul Mezcal to not have to do a lot. You know what I mean? By having a strong actress be the, the child lead, you're able to more readily interpret what Paul Mezcal is giving you. And so the, the, the bond between these two characters, these two actors, is really palpable, which, I mean, fucking kudos to Charlotte Wells. And that's why, like, even when the movie gets a little bit slow for me, I don't really give a shit. I I thought it was so nicely done. And that's, I think, the best word for it. It's such a nice movie. Um, Corwin, tell me your thoughts. It's definitely an, an incredibly slow burn. Uh, I know you mentioned that when you had first watched it. Um, so I knew it was coming. Uh, I wasn't expecting how slow this burns. But I will say watching the relationship between father and daughter in this was incredibly heartwarming for both good and bad throughout. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed this film. And I really struggled to kind of decipher why in the thick of it because it's not much happens you know it's a father daughter on a 
budget holiday in Turkey where they just go do holiday stuff together. But it's so centered around their relationship with one another and his relationship with his own inner struggles and her relationship with, well, not relationship with, but her reaching an age where she starts to see them and she's starting to, she's curious about how things reach this point, uh, both in his life, her life, her parents' relationship. The levels that it gets towards the end, that it kind of leaves up in the air, uh, definitely really got to me. Um, I just, I love Paul. Have you, did you see him in Normal People? His kind of breakout role? Um. I'm actually not sure if I saw Normal People. It's so. a it's a TV series on Netflix, I believe. Not a oh, film. then almost certainly not. Um, he, I he does sad as well as anyone. He he knows how to portray a you know almost broken psyche, if you will. And I really enjoyed him in this, especially as kind of a juxtaposition to uh you know almost carefree 11 year old on vacation well and what i will say about paul mescal in addition to his ability to do kind of somber is that he also is able to play it off kind of like discard that or mask it really well too because i mm-hmm. i didn't know what the movie was about i never like knowing what movies are about i like figuring it out or seeing what they got because i feel like if you know too much about a movie going into it you come in with a certain bias or perceived notion um and so I also didn't realize that this movie was about a man struggling with depression in, in a certain type of way, you know, and because this film is from the perspective of a of a child there, it, it took like a little bit for me to be like, oh, Paul Mescal's like not doing great because it is um, it is like a, from the point of view of a kid who like doesn't kind of get that really, you know, like at least has to figure it out, you know, has to understand that like, oh, the points in time when I'm not feeling great, adults can feel that too. And Paul Mescal is also not some like bizarrely, like completely disheveled man. He has these, (laughs) these very relatable ways in which he is outwardly expressing the attempts he's making at bettering himself or, um, trying to find happiness you know it's it's stuff like like the fact that he's doing the tai chi books or sorry has the uh, the, the self-help books and is doing tai chi you know the, these things that i think is universal across ages where we're all trying mm-hmm. to figure out uh, how we can try to feel better you know like there's a phys- which has a physical component and an intellectual component Obviously, there's there's the big emotional component, but that's what we're all struggling with. And we, we seek answers in these other ways. So maybe if I look better, I'll feel better, you know, or maybe there's a, a, a way to get me to move around a bit so I can take my mind off of things. Or maybe there's uh, there, there's some part of my brain that hasn't locked in to 
how I'm supposed to be addressing my feelings that can that can help with me figuring them out when when they turn a certain direction. And so just and those are still today. This movie clearly takes place in like uh, late 90s or 2000s. Um, but those notions are still very true to today. And then Paul Mescal obviously incorporates some elements that are a little bit more obvious, like him standing on the uh, the railing. And um, I really felt the emotional sting of the karaoke scene that was uh, brutal on both ends. I think. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, it's so one of the sadder scenes in a, in a sad film. Sad for both reasons, though. That's what makes this yeah. like that scene is what makes the movie so good because it captures like Paul Mescal's not trying to be an asshole, he's embarrassed, like he's self conscious, he's he's a little he's he's too scared and in not a right place to put himself out there like that. And mm-hmm. uh, Frankie Corio, like is an awkward kid who's always done this thing and you can tell it's starting to, she's starting to get too old for it or she's at least starting to get old enough where she can be embarrassed by it a little bit, but also commits to it because she's, you know, in the middle of learning how to be that person. And it's such a great scene because they're both so awkward (laughs) and so uncomfortable and neither one of them are wrong. And they're both, phases of life that we have either experienced or um understand to where it stings so much and the thing that really broke me was the scene the next day when they're in that uh like mud bath and he's trying to express to her how unbelievably he sorry is sorry he is that he put her in that situation and you could tell how much it broke him having to have done that and and not being able like mentally emotionally to be able to to break out of that hole when she quote unquote needed him to and just trying to make sure an 11 year old your 11 year old daughter understands that you're not just saying sorry that like you are heartbroken by this in a way that she can understand that really it hits deep you see both sides of it and it really you know it's not it's it's something you don't have to have experienced to know just how much that hurt both of them yeah there's also um it's also the scenes of Sophie kind of like learning having some social interaction where she's kind of like you know learning how to age a little bit there's a boy her age that she kisses um after like kind of a a handful of interactions um where you get that like that's the vibe and there's a group of older kids she kind of uh hangs out with like a little bit at the end um you know, kind of in that way that we all did when we were younger, which is like you're kind of on the outskirts and you want to be a part of things, but you also have not the confidence to say anything, <laughs> really like right. participate in any kind of way. So you're just kind of there hoping they bring you in. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
so relatable for like that age specifically, but also modern st- still ongoing phenomenon. Um, and you know, as much of a like a kind of distance as there is between the, the the people like there is like that really tender moment when they're reconciling as Corbin was saying where Sophie also mentions that like ah, I kissed a guy the other night and Paul Mescal's like kind of okay with it you know like they they have um, a mutual understanding that is relatively if not entirely unspoken mm-hmm. god that was the one part where it's like oh god is so young for that I think and I was thinking about it and I was like, I actually, is that too, like, how old was I? Is that too young? <laughs> what? How old am I? Oh my what God. I'm old, oh my God. I'm such an old man. Uh. <laughs> I live with, with, with a, with a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, throughout the film, there, there are, um, interstitial shots of Paul Mescal, uh, dancing in a rave um and then as the film progresses eventually you see sophie also uh at one of these kind of strobing raves uh what do you what did you make of those those shots um i really just up until the final scenes um I I couldn't even come up with an idea because it was so almost sporadically placed and you're given such a limited view of what's actually happening. Like, you know it's a rave, you know he's there dancing, you see her dancing, but there's so little context for it. Like, I couldn't even develop an opinion of, of what was going on. And then the ending of the film kind of wraps up and I guess we're just going to dive right into the ending. Yeah. And, you know, you've seen the struggles that he's gone through and you see that he's going through something and you see adult Sophie kind of facing a similar, not a similar struggle, but you could see that she has something she almost embodies you know her father in a way me viewing her trying to grab a hold of him in that rave makes me believe that when he walks through those double doors into that rave scene in the airport that's directly or indirectly leading to his death whether it's by his own hand or as a result of him, you know, trying to get away from this to some extent, I've viewed it as he has passed either sometime shortly after this or later on. And this is her last interaction with him. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely viewed as more, um, symbolic than literal uh the 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 rave um i took it as to be more about uh the mental state rather than the actions like uh 
they're both dancing to the same song. You know, they're they're both experiencing the same type of um, mental condition or uh, existential dread or what have you. You know, there is a there is there it is it is that commonality, um, whatever it may be. But I definitely read the ending as he's dead. And that was like the instigating factor for why adult Sophie was going through the videos. Mm-hmm. Did you think the same? I did. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. added thoughts to that? No, that's pretty much it. It, it. It's interesting because there's not a mournfulness in the way that she's going through the videos in like a, some melodramatic, like, sobbing way you know mm-hmm. there is almost like a somber kind of um understanding with watching those videos like she's she's coming to terms with something that makes me think you know she has gained an appreciation for all that he was able to do given maybe some of the limitations that she has grown to understand from her own experience. Though again, it's handled very well from the show, not tell dogma of filmmaking. Um, And the fact that it is so incredibly not spoken to the point of, you know, great ambiguity serves the film rather well because it doesn't really matter. You can really read this, any way you want and it's probably perfectly acceptable Mm -hmm. which i really appreciate you know of course it's easier just to be kind of shown or given what we should be seeing or, or should think when a director has a very clear interpretation of the story um I like that this can be read in any way you see it. It's not a right or wrong, and it's not even a, oh, I, you know, does Tony Soprano die? It's, there are 30 different ways that you could have viewed this film and reached a conclusion. Um, and none of them are any more right or wrong because there isn't an answer. Right, because what I what I like about this movie and this ending is that any film that has some degree of relatability, whether that's broad or narrow, means that you are inherently going to be filling it in with your own personal experience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what leads to some people liking movies that maybe have a more niche direction than others, right? You might have more of a relation to a film that speaks strictly to an experience that is uh, specific to your ethnicity or to uh, a specific experience, individual experience that you have also had, uh, what have you, right? Uh, It's it's especially true for family films because we all have family, right? And so this is one of those moments where it really lets you, the watcher, the viewer, color it with whatever dynamic you kind of 
watch the film through based on your experience with your parents, you know, and it has done such a nice job in avoiding confrontation for the entire movie uh, that it lets you kind of, you can hate Paul Mescal's character because he, I don't know, wasn't attentive enough to Sophie, or you can think Sophie's a dick for, I don't know, not being closer to her dad throughout his life. Like you can sympathize, empathize or uh, dislike a character for any reason that your individual past will allot for. And this film will give you the room to feel that in the ending, which is a hard thing, I think, to achieve. Uh, so kudos to you, movie. Um, any other thoughts before we wrap this one up? Um, I would love to see a uh, film where Paul Mescal gets to be happy. He deserves it. He does. He seems like a sweet guy. What a year for Irish people. Right. Go Ireland. What a year for the Irish. Just, just what a, I know it's been like written about ad nauseum in film and movie blogs and websites and whatnot, but man, what mm-hmm. a year for the Irish. Hey man, Queen died. The Irish came out to play. What else can they, you say? The Irish have a best foreign film na- nomination. <laughs> like, what a year for Ireland. Charlotte Wells is Scottish. Also, Paul Mescal is Irish. It's true. We we talked about how hard it is to have a directorial debut uh, with two Leslie. This was Charlotte Wells' directorial debut. Oh, was it really? I thought she had done something prior to this. She had done some shorts. But this was her first uh full-length feature film this is her first feature good for her and then right <laughs> then god way to fucking, fucking go i mean hell, huge yeah. huge uh uh applause to charlotte wells holy shit mm-hmm. way to go charlotte um all right cool uh give me some stars what do you think oh man um my heart's telling me to give it a four and a half it might be a little high for for what this is, but I'm gonna follow my heart. Right on. I'm going. I'm going four squarely and four. So if you're keeping track at home, the the star ratings uh, were one, two, and four. <laughs> Thankfully, they progressively got better. I'm glad we ended on a high note. Yeah, I, like I had watched After Sun today, so like it was definitely the most fresh. And usually, you start with those just you know so you can get it off your chest. I could not start with this and have to finish with like fucking blonde. That movie is so fucking bad. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, anyway, can we, so- can we remake Blonde and put Paul Pascal as Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> it's gonna be bad. The, Let's at least the, get rid of it. You know? I was about to say the movie can't get worse, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I really am hard pressed to think of a way in which that movie is worse. So, Yush. Anyway, so that rounds out uh, best lead actor and best lead actress. Um, we are one week away from the Oscars. We have two movies left to watch, so we can round out the the supporting categories. Those are Causeway, which is nominated for Brian Tyree Henry for best supporting actor, and Black Panther: Wakanda Forever for uh, Angela Bassett in reco- uh, supporting actress. 
So uh, those would be our next two films. Uh, we'll be recording them probably on Oscar Sunday, which means the episode after that, we will uh, just talk about what happened with the Oscars in regards to winners and so on. Um, Corwin, any thoughts on anything before we wrap this up? No. All right. Well, then, if you uh, would like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. And if you follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until probably next Sunday, y'all have a good one. Bye. Bye.